So if you would turn with me to um, Revelation, I, I didn't write down the chapter. I read it just a few minutes ago or moments ago, but I don't write. So I'm looking for the passage in Revelation where there's the woman who's about to give birth. I think it's, yes, chapter 12. So Revelation chapter 12. There we go. And this is an interesting, um, bizarre vision that John sees. And it's after the uh, episodes where uh, most of us would consider the rapture having already taken place in our understanding of future events, but it's hard to tell for sure. But this is a great and wondrous sign that appeared in heaven. And so John is writing, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven thorns or crowns excuse me, on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so he might devour her child the moment it was born. So what do you think so far? Sounds to me like Israel or the people of God, right? The seed that was promised to Eve, one of her descendants would crush the serpent's head. The serpent is a dragon. A third of the stars, this is maybe one of the places we get the idea that a third of the angels fell with Satan when he fell. And so this, this image is not future per se. It's like a cosmic illustration of all of history, really, since, since Adam and Eve. And so this dragon is waiting to destroy the child of the woman, right? Just like Satan would want to do and has tried to do many, many times throughout history. Okay, so I left off in verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days, which is, interestingly, three and a half years. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven, and the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of the, our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the, child, to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. Two and a half years again, right? Out of, or three and a half years. Time plus times, one plus two is three and half a time. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And then it goes on and he sees the beast come out of the sea. And so, so these are certainly wild and fantastic images. And I don't pretend to know everything. But I do think that when and if, not if, but when this happens in history, some of these details, they'll be understandable by the people who are alive at that time. I think they'll understand it. They'll see it. They'll recognize it. I think this is for them, not necessarily for us to play last time's bingo and try to figure out who the, who the Antichrist is or any of that stuff. But the, the, the more overarching story that I want us to pick up is that there's this, this um, age-long conflict between the woman and the serpent, between the dragon and the woman, right? And, and just like God said to Eve, you, you know, he's going to... Uh, you're going to give birth to a son. And someday, one of your descendants is going to crush the serpent's head, and the serpent is going to bruise his heel. So it's going to come at some cost. And so we see that as the first prediction of the Messiah, who will come from the woman and, and will crush Satan and defeat death and Satan altogether at the expense of his own life. Right? He will be wounded for sure, and then he would raise from the dead. So we see that as, in the grand scheme, this is the big battle, right, between human beings, the great descendant of human beings, the Lord Jesus, and then his conquering Satan. That's a backdrop for what I want to talk about tonight, and that is sort of a, an interesting um, catalog of women in the Bible, who have been particularly uh, courageous and involved in this battle for the seed. And I um, heard this message, uh, I heard the, by and large this content from Jen Wilkins. Have you ever heard of Jen Wilkins? She's a, a good Bible teacher, uh, good, good uh, Orthodox teacher, Gospel Coalition type stuff. And, um, but she pointed out some things that I had not seen before, and, um, and stylistically, she's maybe hard to take, because she, she, she sometimes, this is just my opinion, she sometimes comes across a little bit like, you should have known this sort of tone, but that can be just, she's such a gifted teacher that we probably should have known, 
But, um, and so um, Becky noticed that. I don't notice it because I probably come off with that a tone sometimes too. So I'm, I'm probably more like Jen than I would want to admit. But anyway, <clears throat> let me just uh, think through with me this list of women. First of all, there's Eve, right? And she gave birth to a son, her first son. And, and she thought that maybe he would be the one, right? I mean, the promise was a child was going to come and, and Abel was born. And then Cain comes along and kills Abel. And what a setback that must have been. Right? That was pretty bad news. And then Seth is born as a substitute um, or as the next son, and she calls him the substitute. And so, so maybe from the line of Seth, and that seems to be the case. And we move down in history, in history, and then we have uh, Abraham in this bizarre experience with God where God promised him to be a great nation, and he, and he did... Um, he believed God, God credited to him his righteousness, and, and then God promised that he would have a child through his wife, Sarah, but they waited for a long, long time, and then there was this, when I say bizarre situation, is they kind of got desperate or impatient, and they tried to pull off a human solution, and so Sarah said, well, maybe I can just be the legal mother, not the biological mother of this seed, and so why don't you have a baby through a surrogate, through my servant, Hagar? And so Abraham had Ishmael through Hagar. And there's this interesting conflict that begins to occur. <clears throat> um, Ishmael grows up and Abraham loves him. He's his son for sure. And then uh, remember, Sarah finally has Isaac. And around the same age that Isaac was being weaned, which would be two to three years old, I guess, um, in Bible times, Ishmael was old enough to know what was going on, and he made fun of him. He mocked him. And so I, you know, the guess is maybe Ishmael was like 10 or 13. And so Sarah starts to abuse Hagar. And, uh, and Abraham is sort of in a, in a pickle, and God says, listen to your wife, Sarah, and send her away. And so Abraham kicks Hagar and Ishmael out, which is horrible sounding. And then Hagar goes into the wilderness and she leaves the, the boy. He's <coughs> young enough not to take care of her. <coughs> Excuse me. But she's... Um, but he's old enough to be by himself a little bit. So she leaves him under a bush and she goes somewhere else, remember? And she says, I can't stand it, watch him die. And then God comes to Hagar and promises that he'll take care of Ishmael, make him into a great nation as well. So you remember that whole story. So the point is, is that there's this conflict. Whose seed is the one who's going to have the uh, descendancy? Who's in and Sarah and Hagar are locked in this rival wife, rival mother, rival inheritance conflict, right? Whose seed is it going to be? And that conflict continues to this day, right? Interesting, right? The descendants of Ishmael are the Arabic peoples who are in bitter hatred and, you know, for historically with the descendants of Abraham and Islam is based on Ishmael. They, were, they would actually say that Ishmael is the line. 
And so, um, so this conflict is the Middle East conflict in a nutshell, all the whole time. So that, so there's, but what I wanted to see was that there's this, uh, it seems scandalous. There's a scandalous component to it, but it's hard to tell whether it's right or wrong. It's hard to know whether Sarah's right or wrong from the storyline alone. Do you at least share that tension with me. So I'm going to give you a, a list of these events, and then we're going to talk about it and say, so how do we sort all this out? The next person in the storyline is Sarah has a son, and his name is Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has uh, 12 sons. And the fourthborn of that is Judah. And Judah has a, two or three sons, at least two, and one of Judah's sons, this is while Joseph, after Joseph is sold into Egypt. So in Genesis 38, we have this really weird story of how Judah's sons were, were defying God's plan. And one of them would refuse to have intercourse with his wife and, and, um, and God killed him for it. And another son, so in the Leverite system, Tamar, the wife of the firstborn, becomes the wife of the secondborn to have the descendants go on because it's a big deal whether or not you get your inheritance and all the descendancy. And the second son refuses to father any children with her as well, and God kills him dead. And so here's Judah with two dead sons at the feet of his daughter-in-law, and I suppose he could rationalize she's a bad luck term, right? You know, you, I don't, we don't know. But Judah promises the thirdborn son to Tamar. But when the thirdborn son grows up, we, I can't remember his name. Does anybody remember? And it's not important. But um, when he grows up, it's fairly evident to Tamar that Judah's not going to keep his promise. So Tamar is being cut out of her rightful place in the family line and will not have descendants. And so she pretends to be a prostitute and tricks her father-in-law into to conceiving a child with her, and he keeps his credit card and signature, his staff and his other things, and waits and sure enough, it's found out that, that Judah's daughter-in-law is pregnant. And so he's got his chance. She's worthy of death now. And so he's, he says she should be killed for this. And she produces the evidence as who the father is and says it's by the owner of these things that I'm pregnant. And so Tamar fights for her rights to be an heir in the family of God, and gives birth to twins, I think it is, Perez and Teres, or, and they wrestle against each other. I don't know if I'm getting confused with Jacob and Esau wrestling. But anyway, I think she does have twins, and they end up, one of them ends up being the line of Jesus, right? So Jesus does come through Tamar's descendants, through her father-in-law, 
And in the end of the story, it's scandalous again. It feels scandalous. Something's not right here. And yet, in the end, Judah says, you're more righteous than I. You did the right thing. I didn't keep my word. You leveraged my, he doesn't say this, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, speculating. But he, in his thinking, was he saying, you leveraged my uh, sinfulness to want to use a, a prostitute and made me do what you had the legal right to have done to you, to give you a child. And she gave birth to a seed. And so again, we have this component of courage and a component of scandal and a component of this war that Satan is trying to stop the seed from coming. Do you see that kind of pattern, perhaps? So then the next one I come to is, um, of course, you know the story that after Judah kind of gets his life turned around in this whole situation because Judah is the one through whom the promises are given and, and he commits to take care of his little brother. And when they find Joseph in Egypt, Judah is the primary means through which reconciliation occurs and demonstrates his character. And his father blesses him as a, as a kingly tribe. And so Judah turns into a hero in the Joseph reconciliation story. And so they all move down to Egypt to survive in there to get away from the famine that was in the land. And so 400 years go by, and guess what? The king of Egypt wants to destroy the seed of the woman. He makes a rule, they're getting too powerful, so he says all the male children are going to be killed. And um, one of the things that Jen Wilkins says in this, her message is every Jewish girl who gave birth to every Jewish woman who gave birth to a son would say to herself, I wonder if this is the one, right? They had in their culture and in their promise and in their teaching that they might be the parent of the, the seed that was going to come. And they're all waiting for that. And so here's this um, family who is facing uh, the, the, the threat of Egypt and what happens is these women who are the Egyptian midwives, somehow they choose to defy the Pharaoh's command and not throw the babies into the river. So they risk, they take great risk to their own selves and they lie to the Pharaoh. And this is one of the examples that people would use as yeah, the rules of the Bible sometimes contradict each other because it says do not lie, but the midwives lied, so how is that a good thing or a bad thing? So there's the sniff of a scandal again. I have a way to think about it that makes me feel like it's not a scandal. It's an act of war, whatever. You can deceive your enemy in warfare, and they certainly did the right thing. But because they stood up against, and it's interesting, the primary image of Egyptian power is the serpent, right? It was, you know, on the Pharaoh's head is, this, is the, the crown with a serpent on it. And, uh, and they defied Pharaoh and God blessed them with what? Large families. The midwives were given many children. So they were courageous. They fought against the powers of evil to spare the lives of newborns 
and were courageous. And then you see Moses' mother choosing not to go along and saving Moses' life. And so there's another uh, example, perhaps, of, uh, of someone who defied the command. All right, Moses grows up. You know the story. And he goes out in the desert. So he, he grows up in Egypt for 40 years, and then he goes out in the desert for 40 years, and then he goes back to Egypt and said, let my people go. And they get out of the, you know, with the 10 plagues, and they cross the Red Sea, and they get the Ten Commandments. They go to the Promised Land. They don't have faith. They refuse to go in because of their, the bad report of the 10 spies versus the two spies. So God is angry with that generation. So they wander in the desert for 40 years until everybody of that generation dies off. A whole new generation comes up. They go to the promised land and they go to conquer the land and, jo- and Joshua is the leader. And so they go and they send spies to Jericho. And who do they meet in Jericho, these spies? They meet this woman who is a prostitute, a harlot. Her name is Rahab, and she hides the spies from the king of Jericho. And she tells them that we know that your God is true, so she's a convert of sorts. And she tells them what to do and where to hide and where to go. And when the king comes to her house and says, where are those men that came? She sends them on a wild goose chase, and so she, so she hides them on the roof, and then she lets them go through the window and all of this stuff, and Rahab is spared of all the people of Jericho. It was, they were all put to the sword, man, woman, and child, but anybody in her house was spared. And Rahab, because there was a cord hanging out her window, God and the people protected her from destruction. But she was a harlot, and she lied. And so there's that scandal component and the courage component but she's in the line of Jesus too. Her son is a guy named um, Obed. And his son is a, uh, maybe I'm getting it mixed up. Boaz is, her son. Boaz is her son, that's right. So Rahab has a son named Boaz. Have you ever heard of Boaz, right? So here we now have another woman who is, she's, um, she's a Moabitess. And so in the land, there was a famine. And so this guy and his wife and two sons flee to Moab. They leave God's land to try to go get sustenance in another place. Both of their, their sons marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpha. Orpha and uh, and they, uh, they both die. They're sickly. Their names are even odd. So they're sickly sons. And, um, and so... Then the father dies, and so it's just Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And she says, I'm going back home. And she tells them not to go with her. And then Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you no matter what. Your people are my people, your God, my God. So this Ruth Moabitess, which is forbidden for Jews to marry, she proselytizes. She says, your God's my God. I'm going to become Jewish. And she comes back with Naomi. And so she's in the town of Bethlehem. And Boaz, the guy who's the son of Rahab, so this is not but one generation from that story, he's in charge of this big land. And it just so happens, the book of Ruth says, that Ruth is gleaning in his field and he notices her and he, he asks about her and he finds out who she is. And, and she is given extra blessings. The guys kind of throw extra stuff away and she gleans this. And so she comes home to her mother-in-law and has all this stuff 
And it's surprising that she would be blessed with so much. And she, where were you at? Where did you glean? Because they were allowed to get from the corners. That was their method of uh, welfare in those days. And so, uh, long story short, Naomi says, this is good. He's a kinsman redeemer. He, there's a possibility he can buy us back. All of the inheritance that we lost because my husband died, is he's, he's in the family line. He can, he can reconnect the dots and get us back into our inheritance. And so there's this really weird, culturally weird to us, we can't figure it out, moment where she sneaks into his bedroom, kind of, right? There's not really his bedroom, they're camping. They're out by the, the threshing floor at night, and in the middle of the night, he wakes up. I wonder if she tickled him or something, but he wakes up and there's a woman at his foot, at his feet. And he says, what's going on? And she says, I'm Ruth. Put, your, put the uh, skirt of your robe over me. It was a symbolic say, you marry me. And it, it's a weird thing. And it, it's courageous and scandalous, kind of. I think, I think we've tried to work around it so many times. Oh, this was just normal and fine. But I think there's a component of scandal in it. It was creepy, in a sense. But it was bold and brave. And Why? Why was she so courageous? Because the seed might come from her. She needed to be in the line. She needed to uh, pursue that, that possibility. So he says, just be quiet and don't leave until dawn because it wouldn't be good to know that a woman was on the floor, which is another example to me that it was sort of scandalous. And so I doubt he fell asleep again. I doubt that she did. Maybe they talked a little. I don't think anything uh, sensual happened. The Bible doesn't say that at all. But she came home, and Naomi says to her, hey, he's not going to waste any time getting this all worked out. And he didn't, right? He went right to the city gate, and he went to there was another person who's closer, and he says, hey, you want to redeem the field? Oh, yeah, I want the field. You got to take Ruth too. Oh, oh no, I don't want to do that. He, he didn't want to bring a, a rival wife into his family or whatever the inheritance complexities would be. And so he passed and Boaz took her. And so Boaz, she became the wife of Boaz and she bore a son and they put that on the knees of Naomi, his mother-in-law, reconnected the dots. And so Rahab is the mother of Boaz and Boaz is the father of Obed, and Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of David. So we are, this is the family line, right? This is the line that Satan keeps trying to mess up, and these women keep intervening, but there's this scandalous component, courageous component, something I can't really, um, I think there's something uniquely feminine about these experiences that I can't directly access. So I'm asking you ladies to help us with this as well. Okay, we need to keep going though. Um, so I'm not sure exactly why I'm emotional about it, except it's such a cool story. So I'm excited. So David has a number of wives, uh, military, you know, Saul gave him a wife trying to mess him up, and that didn't work because she actually loved him. And, and then he got Abigail, and, and then he gets this 
horrible, the greatest, if you said, what did, what's the big mistake of David's life? Bathsheba, right? We all know that story. And he messed up pretty bad. And he, to cover his scandal, another scandal, he had her husband killed and, uh, in battle. And the baby that was born from that pregnancy died at, in the first, few, first week, less than eight days, I think. And David, um, you know, they went forward, but he, she was his wife. And then David gets older and Solomon is born. And who is Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. And so Bathsheba, so David's got sons, Absalom and, and Abner, or I don't know what all the guys' names are, but you know, the ones that kill each other. Is, the whole world goes messed up in David's family because of the sin that he did with Bathsheba. So he has to pay a lot of consequences. But near the end of his life, David is kind of uh, not being very decisive about who's going to be the king when he dies. And different ones of his sons are vying for power. And Bathsheba, it's an interesting read, and I don't have time to read it right now, but she comes in and she makes a special appeal to David and said, you gotta pick Solomon. You gotta do this. And so she, out of the scandal of that whole illicit relationship that started illicitly, she asserts her rights as the mother of her son that he would be the heir. And David yields to her appeal and appoints Solomon his heir. Solomon is not his firstborn son. Solomon is, Solomon is his choice. And Solomon is the one who becomes the king that rules over the most prosperous time of, of, of Israel's history, but eventually becomes the father of all of the, the line of Jesus. So again, a woman is courageous. There's a scandalous storyline, and yet she asserts her rights to be the heir. And it goes all the way to Mary, that young girl who everybody else thinks is pregnant out of wedlock. A scandal. She knows. So, you know, the angel said, this is, you are the one. So it's a pretty cool story. But it's, there's a story of women going through all the line, and we're running, I got five minutes. But what do you think? Is there, how, what do you think? I'll switch the other mic. Any thoughts about how are they really scandals is one of the questions I have. Did they really do, Jen Wilkins would argue that they used Satan's own methods to defeat Satan. Lying, deception, seduction, manipulation. I'm not sure I'm ready to go there. Because I think in every case I can defend their actions as being righteous, not wicked. What do you think? Help me out. I've been looking at this for a while too, especially in Matthew, because it looks at the genealogy and women's names weren't normally even included in Jewish genealogies, but there they are. 
God does unexpected things. If we went by human reason and human logic and our hierarchy of people, we'd pick better people. We'd pick people who didn't have any skeletons in the closet or any bad things in their past like we try to do and we pick leaders, pick people who have a clean record. And God picks these people that didn't deserve it. He didn't pick them because they were better, smarter, purer. He just picked them and they didn't deserve it and he still used them in great ways. And I think that he can use people today who are broken and who have black marks in their record before God, but he can still use them and do great things and that we we can't put God in a box and expect that he has to work with the people that we think are the right people. You'd almost have to go through uh, all these women, you know, like, I guess, starting with Tamar. And I tend to think that they were not scandals. Um, Tamar had a right. She was asserting. Ruth, uh, you know, I think Boaz needed a nudge. <laughs> and, um, but I do think, and I can't remember all of them, and of course Mary, you know, was pure, but... Um, I do think uh, along this line that um, God uses um, us in our humanity. And, uh, you know, this was pointing out unusual things here, but everybody has sins. I think it was God using Satan's methods to accomplish God's will. So one, one thing that Moody used to say, I think it was Moody, used to say that even the devil is God's devil. You can't do anything without God. Yeah, that's probably a good way to think of it. I'm sure Pharaoh was really ticked that the midwives lied to him, right? And I'm sure that Judah was mad that he got duped. But he, in the end, he knew what he was doing was wrong. And the the whole lying part, I don't have trouble with because... um, it must be okay to deceive your enemy in the case of war because God does it all the time. He even tells them how to use deceptive tactics, you know, to pretend that you're falling back so that the enemy charges out of the city. So as an, as an act of war, it's not bearing false witness. So you're not breaking the Tenth Commandment or one of the Ten Commandments by, by deceiving your enemy, nor are you breaking a, a commandment by not telling somebody something. You could just be quiet. So I don't have trouble. I think that the midwives, I think that um, Rahab, I think that uh, Tamar, those are all acts of justice or acts of war. So, so the scandal is somebody smells it like a scandal, but I don't think in absolute terms that it is always. But it's an interesting thread that can you think of a, famous, heroic, courageous woman who didn't have some scandal in the storyline. But what's that? 
Deborah, but she's not in the family line, right? But I'm not sure that that would be. And then I thought to myself, well, because I'm thinking out loud here. I'm not planning all this out. But all the guys got messes in their storyline too, right? There aren't very many pure, pure, uh, pure records on the, on the man's side either. But I want, to, I want to continue this discussion next week. I, I tried to introduce it today, but think about it, and I'll try to recap it more quickly next week when we... But I, I want to dive in here. Something about this line of thinking has woken in me this need for us to understand and respect. These, these women are, are operating underneath the oppressions of women. In, in almost every one of these cases, they're the powerless one, and God delivers them out of their powerlessness. And there's a courageous message in here somewhere. You, you know what I'm saying? I, there's a, the Bible has a high view of women. We ought not to be regarded as having a low view of women. As similarly, Firstborns are a big deal. Look how many times God chooses the secondborn, right? Jacob and Esau. Esau had the birthright. Ephraim and Manasseh. God chooses the secondborn. So, so what the world views as natural power structures, God is fighting all the time. Any final thoughts before I close? All right, thanks for bearing with my wimpingness. Let's pray. Father, um, help us to see the cosmic battle that um, has been waging, the war has been waging for, between uh, your, your chosen seed, your, the family line and the great enemy of our souls. And how he hated Jesus and how he hates us, his people and how we need to stand firm and protect one another and, and stand firm as the followers of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you.